So tonight I want to talk about sort of um, motivation on two levels, our deep motivation, also the moment-to-moment quality of intention, which is really how our purified consciousness manifests. And um, I guess the essence of what I want to talk about is from a, a line I read in a book by Dingo Kensi Rinpoche, where he talks about uh, we need to mingle the teachings with our minds, mingling our minds with the Dharma until it permeates our whole being. Really, to me, I love that because that's really, that's, to me, a little synopsis of the whole path of our life. It doesn't happen all at once, but all the different ways that we practice and um, work in our lives are ways of working towards mingling our minds with the Dharma till it permeates our whole being. So in terms of the path of the Eightfold Noble Path, the beginning of the path, the beginning of our spiritual journey, and it keeps on increasing really to the end of it, is wise understanding, right view. Really, each, as I talked about insight the other night, each time we, we recognize more accurately anything, mundane, super mundane, in practice, a problem in life, when we recognize it differently, the patterns that have kept us in suffering from not seeing clearly let go. That's right view. And that can be just enough to see something doesn't seem to be working in my life. Maybe there's some other way that gets us started on a spiritual path. And then the right view just keeps deepening and deepening. And how does that manifest in our life, in our choices? That's where I'll get to intention. I want to read just to, because I love it, but also just to kind of pique us with the possibility of a very deep uh, expression of wise understanding. This is from Dingo Kensi Rinpoche, who was one of the most beloved and well-practiced of the Tibetan teachers in this last century. He's dead now. What we normally call the mind is the deluded mind, a turbulent vortex of thoughts whipped up by attachment, anger, and ignorance. This mind, unlike enlightened awareness, is always being carried away by one delusion after another. Thoughts of hatred or attachment suddenly arise without warning. Can you relate to that? Triggered off by such circumstances as an unexpected meeting, with a friend or a difficult person. And unless they are immediately seen through with proper awareness, they quickly take root and proliferate, reinforcing the habitual predominance of hatred or attachment in the mind and adding more and more karmic patterns. Right? So that's just a description of our normal mind. Yet however strong, this is the right view part now, however strong these thoughts may seem, They are just thoughts and will eventually dissolve back into emptiness. Once you recognize the intrinsic nature of the mind, means like the purity of consciousness, these thoughts that seem to appear and disappear all the time can no longer fool you. Just as clouds form, last for a while, and then dissolve back into the empty sky, so deluded thoughts arise 
remain for a while, and then vanish in the voidness of mind. In reality, nothing at all has happened. I just love that. So just, I mean, and I'm sure in some ways you've all touched that, that sense of how mundane or wild a thought could be. Attachment, aversion, confusion, and then it's just gone. And really, in some way, all of our mindfulness practice, our samadhi practice, all the different ways, effort, non-effort, all the million different ways we all hear of practice, the essence in all of the path, all the techniques, and not just meditation practice, but working with um, loving-kindness, working with uh, sila, with purity of conduct, as I spoke of last night, with generosity. All of the path is for the releasing of these obsessive entrancements of attachment and aversion and all about me and our relationship to these entrancements, of releasing these obsessive habits of mind. Not because they're bad, because we see through them. And in that releasing of these habits, it allows the intrinsic nature, the natural great peace, that's the potential of how we can relate in life, the natural peace and ease of the heart and mind, allows it to shine through. So when we talk about these habits of greed, of aversion, of delusion, it's not like, you know, we hate them or you're evil, because they, it's just that it hides the potential that sense of, you know, ease that can come just when you hear Dingo Kensi say that. You know, all this vortex of thoughts dissolves back into emptiness and nothing at all has happened. It's just nothing to get so upset about. So that's one radical expression of wise understanding or right view. A question that often comes up, whether it does or not anyway, it's what I'm going to address tonight, is, (laughs) so, (laughs) how does this right view, this wisdom, you say nothing at all has happened, often what can come is, well then, if nothing has happened, does that mean nothing matters? Then how do we function in life? Why even talk about purity of conduct? If nothing has happened, nothing matters. It's what we call uh, that way of looking. is like a, it's an aspect of delusion called falling into emptiness. You know, nothing matters. Nothing's happened. I can do whatever I want. No, no, no. It's a, an attitude. It's not really wisdom. So how does this right view show up in our life? And this is where our motivation, both our deep purpose in life, our deep motivation, and also the moment-to-moment qualities in the mind that um, arouse intention to act show up. In terms of how the Buddha described it even, as I said, the beginning of the path is wise understanding, right view, one one of eight. Think of it more as a circle, but still it's in this order, one. The second thing is wise thought, wise intention, wise attitude. Different translations of the same thing. So in other words, how we think about or understand ourselves and experience, thought, whatever's happening in the moment, 
is what gives rise to the attitude, the thought, the intention in the mind, which is what forms the third, fourth, and fifth steps of the path are wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. In other words, how we speak and act in the world. And so in terms of kind of the link between the depth of understanding, the purity of the consciousness, and how we show up in the world, the choices we make, the way we act with ourselves and others, it really comes together in this link of our motivation, our intention, our attitude. Guy spoke, uh, he mentioned the quality that's a present in every moment of consciousness of chetana, intention, motivation. This is on the, this is one way I want to refer to it. It's on the kind of micro, moment-to-moment level. You know, that there's an intention for each movement, for each action, for a choice we make in the mind that's a little, you know, a little movement of mind. And that particular intention that arises is fed by, is formed by whatever factors are present in the mind at that time. So, for instance, if we're feeling sensations in the stomach and the mind recognizes that as hunger, there could be present in the mind at that time really fear. And that fear says, oh my God, I'm hungry. And if I don't you know, really get to the front of the line, there might not be enough food. No, no, no. And that fear motivates that you jump up and run out of the hall one minute before the bell rings. You know? Or you want to and you have to hold yourself down, you know, whatever. Or you take three times more food than you, you actually can ever eat. But that's because there's wanting in the mind. Does that happen? And you get to your plate and you go, what am I going to do with all this? And the next day you think, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not going to do that. And you think you're taking the right amount, but there's still wantings in the mind and it colors the perception and we take too much. Or there could be those sensations and the mind is in really quite a quiet, equanimous place and it just notices hunger. And really there's no wanting, there's no fear, there's calm, there's wisdom, there's concentration. And so you just keep on sitting there. Or there's calm and concentration and wanting, but the wanting is to hold on to the concentration, not the food. So you keep sitting there, but you're sitting there because you're wanting. You get a sense of how the seed, the heart of actions in this way of looking, is not in how it looks from the outside, but in the intentions that are coloring, that are driving the choices. And this is what the, the habits of our mind are what show up in the intentions. And that's what naturally changes, purifies um, through the moment-to-moment mindfulness, the awareness, through seeing and understanding clearly. Do you remember um, what Guy's quotation from the Zen master, which I actually don't remember the question. What was the question? What's the purpose of a lifetime of practice? Okay, great. What's the purpose of a lifetime of practice? And the answer was an appropriate response. This is exactly what it's talking about. It's incredibly powerful and it's really profound. An appropriate response implies in any particular moment of, you know, something happens, the attention is so present and the understanding, the heart, mind, the consciousness is 
is pure. In that moment, it's not going to be colored by greed, hatred, confusion. And that's what allows a recognition of the situation of what's an appropriate response. You don't have to think it through, but that's why the habits of mind are so key. So, again from Dingo, Dingo Kensi, another way of describing when the habits of wanting, of aversion, of delusion, which come connected to pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, as you saw this morning. So Dingo Kensi saying, when the sense organs encounter an object, the only part the object itself plays is to initiate the process of perception in your consciousness. From then on, as your mind reacts to the object, influenced by your accumulated habits and past experiences, the process is entirely subjective. When your mind is full of anger, the whole world seems to be a hell realm. When your mind is peaceful, free from any clinging or fixation, and what you do is in accordance with that seeing, you experience everything as primordially pure and beautiful. So just playing with that possibility, really seeing how consciousness, the moment of knowing, awareness itself, as a friend of mine described it as squeaky clean, it's pure. The Buddha talks about the, the mind, the chitta, the consciousness, is naturally radiant and pure. And it's colored, or we don't see through it, when it's obstructed by these, in a moment, greed being there, or hatred, aversion, confusion, and we don't recognize it. But that natural purity is not ever stained or touched or affected, really, by these things. They don't like mess it up. So that's why we keep talk, I keep talking about as we learn to shift our refuge from believing in the habits to noticing the awareness. Just that moment is a huge shift of habit. Remember today, uh, in, the, in the questions, I, f- I felt, of course, I was thinking about this, so I felt like, oh yeah, this really brought it out very well. But, but seeing how when something unpleasant arises... The natural habit, when we're not really noticing or paying attention, is, you know, it can be just a subtle aversion or a pulling away, or it can go, you know, all the way, all the way to murderous rage. When it's pleasant, the the subtle habit is that wanting, that leaning in, that liking, and then, you know, that can go on to color the whole world. And as someone said, you know, really perceptively, with, with neutral, it's like, huh? You know, let's get something else going on here because there's nothing happening. Delusion. And the seed of all of those is it's all referring back to me. But did you notice, and some people mention this, just the simple noticing, the relaxing, observing, and accepting, allowing it to be just as it is, not trying to change it, not saying, I have to get rid of this habit of clinging. So either I will never cling or I will never let myself experience another pleasant moment. You know, I'll do everything, you know, so God forbid clinging should ever arise. You can hear the intention behind that is not wisdom. It's either wanting or aversion. So we're just feeding it again. But did you notice in a moment of simple mindfulness, oh, pleasant, look at that, the clinging comes up. Or someone said the unpleasant experience in their body, and then they saw the pleasantness of the thought, and just how the Buddha said that somewhere. 
An ordinary person knows of no escape from unpleasant sensation except to lust after pleasant experience. And so that comes to be the habit of the mind. And that's it, you know? Daydreaming or eating or whatever it is. So, but the point is when we just notice that, just notice it. In a, when the mind's relatively quiet, like sitting here, we just see it and go, oh, well, that doesn't really work. Look at that. And just for a moment, not for our whole life, unfortunately, but just for a moment, in that moment, there's the release of that habit, the release of the clinging. It's not out of a should or it's bad. It's out of, out of the wise understanding, the clear seeing in that moment. Oh, pleasant thought claims nothing to cling to. It doesn't do it anyway. And we're here again. You get a sense of what I mean? And that's simple. That's natural. We're not saying, I'm going to see this in order to get rid of it. As you know, that doesn't work. So the natural shift of habits, the shift of intention from clinging to this pleasant thought to take me away so, you know, somehow to, oh, let it go. It's renunciation and it's just wisdom and it's just presence. That's quite spontaneous, quite the natural. That's a shift of intention, a shift of attitude, and it happens by itself. So in terms of appropriate response, as Guy said, in the, in the moment of real presence, when the consciousness, the chitta, the mind and heart is not colored, not caught in greed, hatred, confusion, and we have to be awake, you know, not a moment of dulled out, because then that's delusion, the natural response the appropriate response can be one of the four Brahma Viharas that Guy mentioned last night. You know, in the face of meeting someone, there's this natural connectedness, acceptance. In the face of suffering, there's a natural compassion. In the face of joy, we're open, connected. There's a natural sharing of joy. And in all things, there's an equanimity of knowing I can't control even my own experience, never mind yours, you know, and that things are as they are. This is in a different way. I like how this was expressed by Nisargadatta Maharaj. Once you can say with confidence, born from direct experience, I am the world, the world is myself. You are free from desire and fear on the one hand and become totally responsible for the world on the other. The senseless sorrows of humankind become your sole concern. Not like that's a should, it's just when we're seeing with wise understanding that sense of fear and separation and it's all about me and it goes away. And then that's the appropriate response. If there's some need, there's right, my need, your need, it's just a need. It's just caring for the world. It's not at all a kind of, oh right, nothing ever happened and so nothing matters and to heck with it all. It's not that at all, quite connected. I had this one page of notes I keep, oh, here it is. <laughs> I keep misplacing it. So, but seeing once or twice, or one or two thousand times, or however, because how many moments of that clear seeing have there been here and in our lives? And there's really many moments where the habit releases itself. 
And each moment of that clarity, of that wisdom, of that metta, whichever it happens to be, is shifting the habit of mind. Again, that quotation guy said, what the, where the mind frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination, the habit of the mind. It will. That used to scare me when I would look at, you know, when I'm not really paying attention and just la-di-da through the day, where does my mind go? Left to its own devices. It's often not very pretty. But how many moments there have been of pure awareness, of kindness, of generosity, of just allowing, accepting. On a retreat, it's a lot of moments. And continuing in our life, it really is shifting. But the habits, that's why there's a path. That's why it really takes this sense of now moving into connecting with our really deep motivation, our commitment, our sense of why, if it is, for each of us, why and how path of awakening is important to us. And finding how we can continue to connect with that motivation and inspire ourselves here and in our lives. Because the habits are strong, they don't just vanish, and it's, it feels like, you know, here, but even more in our daily lives, it's almost like we get tricked back into the habits, either not noticing them or believing in them, or they're so familiar, you know, they just feel like that's the way to respond in life, you know. Someone is angry at us or someone does something hurtful, then the normal response is, yeah, you should get angry back. And one of the ways I feel we get tricked is, is by and large, not completely, that's why we have to look for what helps us with our motivation, but by and large, the messages we get from the greater culture reinforce these habits often. At least this is my experience. Rodney was telling me um, yesterday, he said, I don't know where he got this figure, but we'll assume it's accurate, that he read somewhere. <laughs> I'm assuming he didn't make it up. Let's put it that way. But he said he read somewhere or somewhere that in a normal week, for a normal, per whatever that means, in this culture, we are uh, confronted with approximately 17,000 media advertisement inputs in a week. You know, that's billboards, stuff coming up on the internet, television, radio, magazines, postcards, phone people, you know, how many are there? So 17,000 inputs in a week. That's a lot. And probably a lot of them quick subliminal, we don't notice. But what are those inputs telling us? You need this. You're not good enough. You should do this. You should give this. You need to have this. Everyone else has it. Who are you? You need to be prettier. You need to be richer. You need to be thinner. You need to be younger. You need to be something, you know. That's going in. How many times? I call it a mail order catalog mind. We get here, we get a lot of mail order catalogs. And sometimes when I'm just tired and I can't really focus at night, I just like flip through. And how often do you end up really wanting something you didn't even know existed five <laughs> minutes ago, but suddenly I've got to have it, you know, for my well-being and happiness. Well, 17,000 times a week, you know, we're subjected to that. Once in a while, it's going to catch us, you know, once in a while. Um, 
Shoki Nima Rinpoche said, and this, is, and this is where we need to call on our motivation, our intention. When that happens, you don't hate yourself, but notice it. He says, watch the fickleness of the mind, how easily it is influenced just by a pleasant or unpleasant sight or thought or sound into an immediate mood. Then I say, if, I'm, if I don't notice it at that point, that mood then expands, you know, we're off into a whole world. Just triggered by, you know, some nice-looking something in a catalog. And then there's a thought, wow, with that I could do yada, 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 and then we're off, you know? Or how often are we a little bit bored and we start surfing on the Internet? You know, the next thing I'm planning trips and looking at airlines and renting cars. I have to do that a lot anyway, but I get sidetracked off into something else. It's so easy, you know? So not that it's bad. But this is where, if we just let ourselves kind of just flow without resistance in the waves of society, in the stream, and this is what the Buddha said when he said practicing in his way is going against the stream of society, a quotation I read from Bhikkhu Bodhi. So it's not that we want to hate and fight, but we want to wake up. We want it. I mean, I hope we want to. I want to anyway. This is what the spiritual path is. See why we're doing what we're doing. What brings us happiness and peace? How can we affect others to help them have happiness and peace? What brings us into more suffering, into more feeling of neediness, of, of want? This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. And he said, uh, he said, we've lost our taste for being quiet, for being alone. Society can take many things from us and dull us with noises, smells, sights, so many distractions. So the first thing for us to do is to return to ourselves in order to recover ourselves, to be our best. This is very important. Then we need to reorganize our daily lives so that we do not allow society to colonize us. That we need to be independent to be real people, not just the victim of society and other people. I personally, I mean, I personally wouldn't use the word victim, but just kind of like haplessly tossed about by the winds of habit. But as Rodney said, really we're hermetically sealed. So no one else is making us fall into the habits of wanting, of aversion, of delusion. It's not that, but it's like I think we really is helpful to recognize how we're not separate from each other, from the world, from anything. We are the world. The world is ourselves. And sometimes that's beautiful. The beautiful, wholesome emotions and ways of being are contagious, but so are the others. (laughs) Wanting is very contagious. Fear is contagious. Have you ever noticed that? I remember reading there was a big fire in a nightclub in Rhode Island a few years ago, and people panicked, and quite a lot of people died in the fire. And I read somewhere later about it, someone who lives describing it, and they said when the fire first started, people were kind of heading, I mean, you know, they're scared, but they were heading more or less okay towards the door, and then they saw one person kind of lose it in panic, and that panic is what spread like wildfire, and everyone lost it and trampled and and people died. Well, the beautiful, 
the wholesome states of heart and mind are actually even more contagious because they're, they're really more the natural expression of the truth, of the way things are, of who we are. But if, at least I found, if I just kind of say, okay, well, now I've done a retreat and I know that's important, then I'll just sit back and, you know, let the truth mingle with my mind and body and turn into, you know, the compassionate bodhisattva of the ages. And, you know, it's not like I have to go out and try, try. It doesn't happen that way, but it's more that, that willingness to recognize the moment-to-moment creation of decisions, of intention, of response to life, and that it's not that we, you know, have to make our actions always be perfect. Forget about that. But finding in ourselves on a deep, this is a more macro uh, way of talking about motivation, of intention. Finding what um, one, one um, Buddhist monk, Yanaponika Thera, who wrote this little kind of guy, the, the uh, what's the name of it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Heart of Buddhist Meditation. He's our... He's our reference source. He can remember stuff. <laughs> um, he calls aligning ourselves with our deepest purpose as an aspect of wider mindfulness. And this is really, it's come up in a few of the conversations I've been having with people in, in different ways. First, connecting with, really honoring, finding for yourself what is deeply true and important for you in your life. And then not just saying, okay, now I've found it, let it do its work, but also seeing how in, as we make decisions, as we live our lives, as we go through our actions, what, how connection with that purpose helps us make choices, help us align ourselves with, you know, what we're doing and why, what's really important, but also to find whatever in our life supports us to continue to deepen, to continue to reconnect with our purpose. A couple of people have said here how when going through the retreat, when they come to a time, which does happen off at times, where they can't connect to their commitment to practice or their motivation or what it is that inspires them. You know, sometimes you just can't find that. And if that lasts for a while it gets a lot harder. Whatever's going on gets a lot harder. You know, you're sitting and walking and why am I doing this? Well, we all have times like that. But if that really goes on a long time, it's helpful to find things to help us connect. And sometimes we can get a little too thinking, like Kit Han says, be independent. So we think, yes, I have to be independent. I have to totally, all by myself, get in touch with my deepest purpose, stay really motivated, stay really inspired, and it's all up to me. You know? No. Let's give it over. It's hard enough. The path is hard enough. But just like we can't exist in isolation, we affect one another, so we can also use that to find what helps us reconnect. So just another couple words about trusting yourself. Really, you may already know what your deep motivation is, what's your commitment, what's your inspiration, what's your purpose. You may know that. And it may change, you know, over years, different words. It may not be words. It may just be a certain, a certain sense, a certain feeling. I can't 
like put it in words, but sometimes that's all it is for me. And when I'm touching it, everything's clear. I know the things that I do, the things are clear. There's not all this second guessing and self-doubt and is it good enough and comparing. I know. And if something comes up that's just really off, I don't have to, you know, should I do it? Shouldn't I do it? Should I get it? It's like I know. It may be hard. I may want to do the thing, but I know. And there's really no question. When I'm not in touch with that, first recognizing that, the feeling of doubt and confusion, and then finding what helps us connect. So it may change over the years. But I just want to put in a plug, if this is something that resonates with you, it may not, and doesn't have to, but if it's something that resonates with you, just in your own time, in your own way, let yourself just really deeply, it's not, it's not so much of thinking about, but just see, let yourself feel whatever it is. And honor it in yourself. Often I found when this first started, when I first started tuning into this, you know, long ago, the, the, the expression in my mind, the thoughts that would come out sounded from my self-judgmental, self-hating pattern of mind, sounded really um, arrogant or highfalutin or, you know, who the heck do you think you are, that kind of thing. Like it was coming from an ego place, but it's the real deep purpose is not coming from an ego place. Those thoughts of who do you think you are, you jerk, that's coming from the ego place. So if something comes up, I don't know, it can be just let me be more kind in life. Let me, you know, be loving to my family all the way up to let me, you know, make the commitment to go through all however many eons of lifetimes it takes to be born as a Buddha, whatever it is. May I serve all beings. May I serve the Dharma. May I be, live with compassion, whatever it is for you. Just let that be and honor it and treat it with tenderness and care. And don't, not me, not this lifetime. Because the essence of the motivation is in that seed of intention. We can't control the results in the life, how it manifests, how other people perceive us, if with the clearest intention in the world it doesn't turn out the way we want, that's nothing we can control. And mostly our tendency is to evaluate was the motivation right by if it, you know, if things turned out in a good way. But that's not necessarily in our control. So it's really learning to trust this depth of wisdom, of purity in our own hearts and minds. We can't fix the world. But the reference point is what's arising in my heart, in my consciousness, what's motivating this action. Now that we keep using the Dalai Lama, he's so quotable. But um, he often talks about when people ask him, you know, how do you know if what you're doing is right? Or how do you? And he says, I just trust the purity of my intention. And I read an interview once, uh, or it was an article describing a, a conversation he was having with some of the young. Tibetans, like the next generation of young Tibetans, you know, energetic activists, and they were basically really reproaching him because, you know, his deep commitment to engaging with the Chinese who've overrun Tibet and are, you know, uh, systematically destroying the culture is really one of nonviolence of compassion. He's committed to that. And this, this interview, it really touched me because these young Tibetans were saying, basically, old man, it's not working. You know, you're wrong. You're wrong. We need to take another tack. And so this article said, 
he was quite touched and like a little tear coming down. And, and he's so open. He's saying, you know, you might be right. It could be that you're right. It could be that I've been wrong. But I cannot be otherwise. Just so committed to compassion and nonviolence, you know, that the reference point is the deep motivation and purity of heart and mind. Not, well, this purity didn't do it, so I'll give over to anger. You know, that'll get the result I want. You know, that's from outside in. And wisdom and freedom and compassion and connectedness come from inside out. And so that's really the importance of connecting with our motivation. And it gives us a a sense of purpose and a stability and a reference point to maybe do things we wouldn't have thought we could do. I mean, if when you first came on a nine-day retreat, some of you, this is your first retreat, and you thought about it, did you think you could make it through if you knew what it was like? When I look back at my first 10-day retreat, I thought, my God, you know, I had no clue what I was getting in with, which is mostly how people come. <laughs> <laughs> And then when you come to the next retreat, you'll find you forgot most of the bad stuff and you remember the nice moments and then you'll start it again and go, oh my God, I forgot about this, but then you're here. But there's a clarity of purpose that we can come back to that keeps us going, that we can make choices that we wouldn't have necessarily thought we could do. And one of the ways I look to keep connecting with my motivation and to keep inspiring it when it's getting a little weak or I'm getting distracted, is by looking, this is one of the ways it works for me, looking to other people, like the Dalai Lama, but he's not the only one, of course, who uh, manifest that. You can see they're ennobled by the, their commitment to the purity of their motivation and such a deep refuge in that. Another person like that is Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, the woman who's been the leader of the Burmese freedom movement. She's been under house arrest in her house for the better part of 17 years. The place, I went by it the other month. I mean, you can't really get close, but you can kind of look over. It's all dilapidated, and no one's allowed to see her but the person who cooks for her. And 17 years. Her husband, who lived in England, died. She hasn't seen her kids for years now. She saw them a little bit before. She could leave any time, but she knows she could never come back. And even though no one can talk about her in that country, it's so repressive, she's really the focal point of so many people's hopes and sense of possibility. I mean, she really, anywhere you go there, as soon as people aren't around, any that could be spying because it's the military regime, like been with poor nuns in little poor nunneries, and they take you upstairs and they have her picture, you know, in little places underneath by the books and They'd call her the lady, and, you know, the, the taxi driver would call the lady. She lives just down there, you know. And everybody, she's so, so she's committed to that. But it's not, it's again, it's like the Dalai Lama. It's coming from a sincerity of her deep inner motivation, not out of an outer looking at what should happen. This is from an interview. She said, I'm surprised people think of me as such an important person because I'm so simple, you know, I'm just such a simple person. I have very ordinary attitudes towards life. If I think there's something I should do in the name of justice or in the name of love, then I'll do it. The motivation is its own reward. 
She says, I never set out, and I never had any intention to be a political person or the leader of the democracy movement or anything like that. Just responding appropriately in each moment. But you can see where it's taken her, what enormous courage and what enormous steadfastness and clarity of purpose. And I know from a few people I know who've known her and visited her that it's not like, oh, that it's so clear and easy, you know? So really, we have to reconnect with our purpose moment after moment, choice after choice. Uh, One teacher said once that every moment we're committing to something. The question is, to what? So it takes us back into this immediacy of awareness of the moment. So now I made a choice out of greed. Do I want to spend the next hour beating myself up about it, or do I want to see what choice I'm making in this moment? Oh, yeah, right. My deep commitment is to awareness, to freedom from suffering. Okay, in this moment, can I manifest that? Moment after moment. What choices are we making? Another person who really inspires me, did inspire me in this way, and this is just one of the ways how we're it's contagious. We're interconnected. Because if something or someone or the behavior inspires us or touches us, I mean, what is it it's inspiring? It's touching that same potential in ourselves, right? Or we couldn't appreciate it. So when we see someone who's really so committed to compassion as His Holiness, and if that inspires us, it's because it's touching that place of compassion in ourselves. So it's like, we're not independent. We use that inspiration, but not to give it all over. He's like that, and I could never be. But rather to see, he's like that, and that touches me. And this is the potential for compassion in my heart in this moment. So Mahagosananda is another one, and he inspires, inspires me because of this sense that of seeing someone, again, where the habits had really been shifted, been purified. And, uh, you know, he died a couple, He died on March 15th, March 14th of this year, just recently. Um, do you know who Mahagosananda was? He was, a Kim, well, he was a Cambodian monk, very much like Thich Nhat Hanh, a real peace activist and peacemaker, deep Buddhist Cambodian monk who came out of the killing fields and his whole family was destroyed in that. And he's been really in, in the Buddhist world, He's very famous as, as being so dedicated to peace and to metta, really, in the refugee camps with all the Cambodians whose families had been killed, and he's led peace walks through Cambodia recently, and he's just been very inspiring. And um, this is from the New York Times obituary. Um, they quote somebody, a professor of Buddhism at the University of California, who wrote that, Mahagosananda's ability to forgive those responsible for the murder of his entire family is incomprehensible until one heard his explanation of Buddhism. Mahagosananda said, he does not question that loving one's oppressors, Cambodians loving the Khmer Rouge, may be the most difficult attitude to achieve. But then he added, but the law of the universe is the law of the universe that retaliation hatred, and revenge only continue the cycle. 
Reconciliation, he continued, means that we see ourselves as the opponent. For what is the opponent but a being in ignorance? And we ourselves are also ignorant of many things. Powerful. Now, the, that's inspiring, And but this next piece of what really inspired me is a few years ago, we, I think all three of us were there, I can't remember, anyway, there was a, a conference at Spirit Rock of Buddhist teachers from all over in all different traditions. And Mahagosananda was there, it was a few years ago. But he was clearly in kind of middle stages of dementia. I don't know whether it's Alzheimer's or dementia. But um, so he was there and someone would stay with him through the day. He certainly, he wasn't presenting or anything. He was just kind of sitting there. And someone would be with him to make sure he didn't kind of wander off. And if you went up and spoke to him, or even if you didn't, he just beamed total metta. It was so powerful to me. Um, at, at the very end, actually, they had it closed by having him come up on the platform like this and lead in the refuges and in Metta. And he just, just came out of him. First it started in French, and then it went into English, and it just came out of him. And then they, uh, sometimes they end retreats by passing out red strings you tie around. So someone, they gave it to him to pass out to like 200 people. So each person would go up, and he'd hand the string to you. And with each, I mean, so when he gave it to me and I watched with other, he would hand it to you with total presence, completely beam you with metta, and then move on to the next. But, you know, he couldn't really carry on much of a conversation. And I've seen, I've spent a lot of time with my parents and in um, nursing homes. I've seen a lot of people with dementia. So when I saw that, that's, you know, that's what the habit of his heart and mind was. This is how we got there, you know. That, for some reason, I thought, wow, that's a life well lived. You know, that's an appropriate response. It really inspires me. Not If I think, you know, fat chance, Carol, you're not going to get there, that's not helpful. But that's not inspiration. But when I just let that touch, and I don't go anything into any story about Carol or possible or future, but just the power of of love, of purity of heart and mind, in a moment, in a moment, that's possible. So for me, that really inspires me. And I'm, I'm more saying those, not that that should be your trip or that should be what inspires you, but to find, you know, in your life, people, readings, activities, whatever it is that helps you reconnect, retouch, deep motivations, and it even deepens them, you know, because I'll meet people and say, oh, more is possible than I even knew, you know. If I just stayed in my own little experience, it's so limited. But like Mahagosananda said, we're all beings with ignorance, you know. So it's possible for one, we can touch that in ourselves. And that, that's the next, just the next piece I want to mention is to recognizing this contagiousness of how we manifest, of how each other manifests, so that just as we can catch wholesomeness and inspiration and, you know, commitment to freedom or wisdom or compassion or non-harming from others, so also recognizing that how we are, how we manifest in a moment, just with our own understanding as best we can, 
also affects others in the same way. And this is why we always go on about the importance of sangha, just the importance of recognizing spiritual friendship. Sometimes we're the person who the light is shining through and we're the spiritual friend. Other times, and it could change, you know, every five minutes change over, and it's the other person. We're all in this together. And so no one of us has to say, I have to be totally perfect. But to have that openness to see how and what choices I'm making and the openness to recognize when someone else is acting from compassion, from love, from wisdom. And instead of, you know, getting into this envy or whatever, let it in. It's kind of like, like sympathetic joy, like compassion. It's sort of like sympathetic goodness, you know, appreciative goodness. We catch it from one another. Recognize and cultivate the wholesome. One of the reasons I really like to go and practice and sometimes teach in Burma, even though the government is really one of the worst in the world, and there's a lot of horrible stuff going on, there's also quite a lot of um, uh, Theravada Buddhist retreat centers and places to practice. And it's a culture that for the most, the majority of the people, it's a Buddhist culture. And so there's a sense of, of course, the Buddhism as a religion, but even without that, the qualities of non-harming behavior, of generosity as a source of happiness, not as should, a source of happiness, of real metta, of real friendliness as the normal way of meeting someone new, as well as a real love of and respect and support for um, bhavana, meditation practice. Those are really deeply in the culture. I didn't know that. My, the first time I went there was about six or seven years ago to do a retreat. And I didn't, I mean, I'd heard that, but I didn't really get it without being there. How much uh, being surrounded or continuing to meet people, not just in the retreat centers, but taxi drivers and the people who run the little guest houses and poor um, women who come in are, and are helping to cook in the meditation centers. and I mean, really, so many people, people that you just meet on the street, Im- just imbue this kind of... They say, what are you doing here? My first taxi ride, the, the young guy goes, well, what are you doing here? I said, well, I came to meditate. And the response, and this is more the norm than the exception, turns around. Luckily, the cars are old and the things are going <laughs> slow, so it's, you know, it's not that scary. Turns around and goes, you're here to meditate. That's so wonderful. I really want to meditate too, but you know, I have to take care of my mother and you hear all the really heart-rending stories. But he's not saying, oh, I can't do it. He's like so happy that I'm there to meditate. And the sense of generosity of people's time, of um, food, of anything they can do to support you um, is so strong. And people are so happy in being generous, which is the piece I never really got intellectually. Like once we were in a village, I was with some friends, and and, uh, an old fisherman took us up to look at the house a friend had built. And he he took like, you know, two hours of his day. Then we came back, and he was so generous, we wanted to give him something, but he wouldn't take. But he wanted to give us something. And all he had was like a big dried fish. 
So that's what he gave us, this dried fish. And so happy to be able to give. It's just that you, you receive this dried fish and our kind of Western mind goes, well, yeah, what are we going to do? He's take it to your friend in Bangkok. And we're going, yeah, right, I'm going to take this dried fish to Bangkok. But, <laughs> he's so sincere and happy. And this is just the first thing that came to my mind. There's about a hundred different examples that we just, oh, you feel so honored, so happy to receive it. And then he leaves and we go, of course we can't bring it to Bangkok. So who can we give it to? And immediately we thought of some nuns we knew who could really use it that day, and we went and gave it to them. And then we were so happy to give someone this dried fish. And the more you're there, the happier I get that you just want to start giving things and time and doing things. Not, not the way we think of it here. So they did this for me, so I have to do it for them, you know, tit for tat. And that's not generosity. That's like doing the right thing. It's not bad. But this real generosity is like, it's a source of happiness. You want to do things for people. You want to give. There's like, it's, it's mixed with metta. And um, so I've been going about the last four or five years. And the last few years, I'll, I, I teach a month at Spirit Rock with Guy and some other friends. And I've been like showing up from Burma the day before. You know, and the first couple of times I did it, they would say, Carol, don't you think you could give yourself a little more time so you could, you know, you got to teach, you got to get over jet lag, and all that's true. You know, I get tired. But they've stopped, he stopped saying that now because he said, geez, every time you come back from Burma, you're in such a good place. You're so happy. And that's what it is. You catch the beauty, the joy of generosity, of metta, of love of the Dhamma. And, so, and it's like, these are just normal people. We catch it. And then when we come back, when we catch it, we can pass it on. Not by, I'm going to give you generosity. Yeah, I'm so great. No, just by, just by being happy. Just by sharing it. It becomes a way of being. That's just an example. So in a world of choices and actions and relationships, really seeing that each moment we make a choice. Each moment. You know, we can choose to connect with, align with our deepest motivation. And when we don't, the next moment we can choose to just see with awareness what we're doing, not beat ourselves up. What are we feeding? What are we starving? I'll just end with two quotations. One is about an elder Native American who is teaching his grandchildren about life. And he said, a fight is going on inside me, a terrible fight inside me, between two wolves. One wolf represents fear, anger, envy, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, ego, all those things. The other one represents joy, peace, love, generosity, friendship, kindness, compassion, faith. The same fight is going on inside you, too, and every other person, he added. The grandchildren thought about it for a minute, and then one child asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? And the old Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed. The Buddha used that a lot, not that story, but the imagery... (laughs) Looking at what are we feeding? What are we starving in the consciousness, in the mind? 
So sometimes the delusion's there and we don't know. We really think our motivation is coming from the purest place, from real compassion, from caring, from metta, from wisdom, you know. And that's really, you know, the best way it's true. We just don't know. The delusion could be manifesting. We don't see it. But we keep paying attention. And if we find over time the way we're acting or the things we're doing, and we find suffering keeps increasing or wanting keeps increasing, aversion keeps increasing. I don't mean just a mood that's coming and moving through, but I mean, you know, over time, over days, you can really start to sense something's feeding this ill will. That's when we stop and look. Just stop and look. What's going on? Can I align more? Find a way to connect with that inspiration, that commitment, that purpose. So then I just want to end with a quotation from Howard Zinn, the historian. To be hopeful, to be an optimist in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness, What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending the spinning top of a world in a different direction. And if we do act, in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presence. And to live now, as we believe human beings should live, in defiance of all that is bad around us, is itself a marvelous victory. So let's just sit for a moment. Mahagosananda's Prayer for World Peace. The suffering of Cambodia has been deep. From this suffering comes great compassion. Great compassion makes a peaceful heart. A peaceful heart makes a peaceful person. A peaceful person makes a peaceful family. A peaceful family makes a peaceful community. A peaceful community makes a peaceful nation, and a peaceful nation makes a peaceful world. May all beings live in happiness and peace.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.